0: question, if he and his people have done nothing wrong, why even talk about pardons? We have not and, ha- and continue to not have conversations with the president of the United States regarding pardons. The president does not need to pardon himself.
1: And the reason he doesn't need to pardon himself is that he hasn't done anything wrong. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who calls his attorney general beleaguered but doesn't mention that he's the one beleaguering him. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Well, it was another wacky week on White House Apprentice. In case you missed the last episode, that poor sap Sean Spicer is now out. A new guy called the Mooch is now heading his press operation. Back before the election, Mooch called Trump reckless and anti-American. But now he loves him and isn't afraid to say so in public while waving his arms around. I love the president. I obviously love the country. I love the president. And the president is a very, very effective communicator. Uh, The president has really good karma, Okay. It was a rough week for Jeff Sessions, too. Sessions didn't get fired, but he's now the designated presidential scapegoat. Wherever he goes, reporters ask him when he'll be resigning, which the president obviously wants him to do. What really matters, though, is whether Trump fires special counsel Robert Mueller. He hinted at the possibility in his interview with The New York Times last week. Then, Trump tweeted that he had complete power to pardon anybody he wants, should the Russia investigation get any hotter for him. If he did either of these things, we'd be watching a whole new season of the show, and quite possibly the final season. Firing Mueller would be another Saturday night massacre, possibly a bridge too far even for Trump's loyal flunkies. Abusing the pardon power to let co-conspirators off the hook, would also point the presidential needle toward impeachment. And to think the unthinkable, what if the president tries to pardon himself? I'll be back in a moment to talk about what the president can and can't do with Harvard Law professor Noah Feldman, right after we do the tweets.
2: Sleazy Adam Schiff, the totally biased congressman looking into Russia. Russia spends all of his time on television pushing the Dems' loss excuse. As the phony Russian witch hunt continues, two groups are laughing at this excuse for a lost election taking hold, Democrats and Russians. It's very sad that Republicans, even some that were carried over the line on my back, did very little to protect the president. After one year of investigation, with zero evidence being found, Chuck Schumer just stated that Democrats should blame ourselves, not Russia. So, why aren't the committees and investigators and, of course, our beleaguered attorney general looking into crooked Hillary's crimes, and Russian relations. Drain the Swamp should be changed to Drain the Sewer. It's actually much worse than anyone ever thought. And it begins with the fake news.
1: I'd like to welcome back Noah Feldman. He's a professor at Harvard Law School and the author of the forthcoming book, The Three Lives of James Madison, Genius, Partisan, and President. Noah, welcome back to the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Jacob.
1: The last time you were on the show, we went into a lot of depth about impeachment. Today, I really want to talk about the president's pardon power, which has suddenly become an issue, partly because Donald Trump tweeted over the weekend in reaction to all this speculation. You tweeted, all agree that the U.S. president has complete power to pardon. Is that true, Noah? Does the president have complete power to pardon?
0: Well, he doesn't have complete power to pardon himself. He certainly can pardon anyone else who has committed a crime. It can't be in advance. You can't say, if you commit any crimes in the future, you're pardoned. But I think the president does have power to pardon for federal crimes. Anyone who has committed a federal crime himself is the exception.
1: So but you just limited in three different ways. You don't get someone out of their problems with state law, only with federal law. Correct. You can't get them out of problems they create in the future for things they do wrong in the future. And you can't pardon yourself. Can you pardon members of your family?
0: Nobody knows. And I I think the most probable interpretation is that the president could pardon members of his family simply because there's nothing in the Constitution saying otherwise. It would obviously be an outrageous thing for the president to do, but we're in a land beyond outrage at this point. But I think legally, every scholar that I know would agree that the president could pardon family members. There is an argument that's out there now. Uh, My colleague Lawrence Tribe has proposed it, that perhaps the president couldn't pardon co-conspirators in some criminal conspiracy of which he was a member. But that's essentially a kind of logical theory being being made up at the moment. It might be true, but I'm a little skeptical of
1: it. Donald Trump is uh, testing a lot of boundaries that we would have previously considered obvious. He may not agree with your view that the president can't pardon himself. What would happen if he did, if he tried to do that?
0: Well, two things. First, Congress could respond by saying, this has gone too far, and then enter into a process of impeachment. But in a more practical world, what a pardon is, is a message to a judge saying this is a get-out-of-jail-free card. This person can't be put on trial. If Donald Trump were, after his presidency, put on trial for a criminal charge, his lawyers would then stand up and say, well, no, he's, he's been pardoned. We pardoned him. Or that is to say, the president pardoned himself for this action. At that point, it would be up to a court to say that that pardon was real or that that pardon was not real. I don't just suspect. I'm as sure as I am of anything in the realm of constitutional law, which is pretty sure that no court would accept that Trump's pardon of himself worked. So he would go on trial and it would just be as though he hadn't done anything or said anything.
1: So why have we been listening to a debate about this? I mean, is this just kind of mindless fodder for cable television, even though there's no real argument on the other side?
0: Look, I'm a lawyer and what I do for a living is train other lawyers. So what I'm I'm about to say is said with full consideration of that, there's nothing worse than a bunch of lawyers pretending that every issue has good arguments on both sides. This is not like that. There are no two sides to this argument. It cannot be that the president can pardon himself. And the reason for that is really simple. It's that if the president couldn't pardon himself, we wouldn't have the rule of law. We would have a president who could very simply just violate the law and then say, ha, huh, I, I don't get charged for it. You know, all you can do is impeach me. I, I can never be charged criminally. And that is simply not the principle of a government of laws and not of men. That would the president entirely outside the law. And that just is not compatible with the rest of our structure of government. Now, the reason that we're arguing about it is that there is a tendency, unfortunately, and lawyers are in some part responsible for this, for th- of thinking that every issue has two sides. And I, I admit that I teach my students to try to think about every issue that way. So surely there must be some reason people say that the president can pardon himself. It never says he can't in the Constitution. And I think that just counts as the kind of argument that gives lawyers a bad name, frankly.
1: It's the uh, constitutional equivalent of uh, biological impossibility, another self-reflexive act that people often refer to.
0: It's true. People, yes, <laughs> very well said. And, and unprintable, and I guess by us, unsayable statement of things that, that cannot be done.
1: Well, you can say anything you want on this podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> somehow I don't quite want to say that to Donald Trump. I do want to say that to Donald Trump, but because it's impossible, what would be the point?
0: Yeah, I don't want to say that to, to anybody, at least at the moment. I think, <laughs> you know, in traffic on a New York City street might, be, might to be a different question.
1: So why does this pardon power exist? As you say, it is this kind of constitutional get-out-of-jail-free card. Why did they, you've been reading every word James Madison ever why did they put that in the Constitution?
0: You know, it's fascinating. At the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the hot summer of 1787, there were actually several of the framers who said there shouldn't be a part in power in the Constitution because they thought that it would give the president too much authority and make him too much like the King of England, who traditionally did have the part in power. But there were some people at the convention who were strongly in favor of executive power. Alexander Hamilton... Amongst them, another was James Wilson, who went on to be a Supreme Court justice and was a big advocate of more presidential power. And they actually thought that it would just be useful for the president to have the capacity to exercise mercy in cases where someone committed a crime but really shouldn't have been held responsible for that crime. And they argued for it, and ultimately, they got it in. And so, you know, their argument was a sort of combination of two features. One was, you know, the quality of mercy is very important and the Constitution ought to have some mechanism for someone who's committed a crime to be forgiven and pardoned if the crime really deserved mercy. The second was a much more hard-headed argument, namely that under some practical circumstances, the president might just have to use the pardon power to achieve some basic purposes of, of national interest, and they wanted the president to have that. And that side is the side that ultimately prevailed. It's not something we spent a lot of time talking about in Philadelphia at all. It just got a couple of brief mentions over the course of the summer.
1: So elaborate on the natural. I, I understand the mercy point that you want the executive to be able to just say, this person's been overpunished or this, you know, to just to do that thing. But what's the national interest point? That sounds more like the open-ended monarchical power where the president can just decide, well, this, this suits my, my interests for whatever reason.
0: They came up with some arguments, and some of them were a little far-fetched. The best ones come from a speech given by not at the convention itself, but at one of the ratifying conventions in North Carolina that took part that took place in the in the year or two after the Constitution was was drafted in Philadelphia. And it, it's a speech by a guy called James Iredell, whom lawyers have heard of because he went on to be actually a very important Supreme Court justice, but no one else has ever particularly paid attention to. And Iredell, among other things said, you know, well, imagine that there is someone who has committed a crime and then gone over to the enemy, but then wants to come back and side with the U.S. And the only way he can do that is if he's promised immunity from prosecution. And surely the president should be able to do that. And the only way that could be done is if the president could pardon him. They were sort of picturing national security situations where it would be in the imperative national security interest of the United States for the president to be able to issue a pardon. And as I say, the cases were a bit far-fetched, but they ultimately weren't, they carried the day, or at least to put it another way, they weren't enough reason for anybody not to ratify the Constitution. How has
1: the pardon power been used historically by presidents? Have there been big issues of it being abused or overused?
0: There have been occasional debates. You'll remember the debate from the end of the Clinton administration about whether a flurry of pardons which is characteristically where they happen at the very end of a presidential administration, uh, went too far. Um, there was the controversy over the pardon of financier Mark Rich, um, where the Clinton administration came under a lot of criticism for pardoning someone who was thought to have political connections to the party. So that, it's not that there's been no controversy, but there hasn't been an extensive use of the pardon power in such a way that it would create a big public outcry against it. You know, probably the single most significant, I mean definitely the single most significant use of the pardon power in our history was Gerald Ford's pardon of Richard Nixon and cynics of course said, well, this is a quid pro quo. Nixon got Ford as his attorney as his uh as his vice president, not by the way by by election because Nixon's own vice president, Spiro Agnew had had to resign after being charged with tax fraud, but you know, Ford became vice president Then Nixon resigned, making Ford president. And then Ford pardoned Nixon. And so people said, look, it's obviously, you know, in order to become president, Ford must have agreed, made this unholy agreement to pardon the president. And, you know, frankly, that's pretty shocking when you stop and think about it. If it happened now, we'd probably be pretty outraged. But there seems to have been a sense, I was around, but not very conscious of events at the time, I was a little kid, there seems to have been a sense, as as I read the materials now, that the country sort of needed it, that we needed to move along. That it was better for the country that Nixon not be subjected to criminal trial for his role in the Watergate break-in, and that view seems to have ultimately prevailed. You know, our long national nightmare was over, and we wanted it to stay over, and avoiding a criminal prosecution was supposed to be the way to do that. So I think you know that's the big that's the biggie.
1: Right. I mean, that was a pardon that, as you say, outraged people at the time, but has looked better in retrospect, and I think has gotten a more sympathetic interpretation from historians. And it is an example of what you were talking about earlier, about just an unanticipated use of the pardon. It wasn't particularly – well, the argument for it that Ford made wasn't that it was about showing mercy to Nixon primarily. It was in the national – it was argued that it was in the national interest. It was to benefit the country so we could turn the page and move on.
0: Yeah. And arguably, as you say, it was in the national interest. You know, it's interesting to ask ourselves in the thought experiment, how would we feel if tomorrow, you know, Mike Pence were, you know, the president resigned, Mike Pence became the president and turned around and pardoned Donald Trump? You know, probably a lot of people would be outraged and say, how dare he do that? Other people would respond by saying, oh, good, you know, we're moving along. So, yeah, I think you're right. There can be national security interests or national interest reasons, I would say, in this instance, um, that might justify a pardon at that level.
1: What's interesting is that's a deal that's often made in the transition from dictatorship to democracy where you agree to let the dictator off his hook for his crimes in exchange for him ceding power sometimes leaving the country but a kind of no no prosecution agreement sometimes that's implicit and sometimes it's explicit
0: it's true the the well, the big example there is augusto Pinochet um, uh, the Chilean dictator who was promised permanent immunity for everything he had done. And then I think they also gave him a lifetime appointment in the Senate and he sort of stayed on in the country. And that can be a useful mechanism for getting out of a a pickle uh, at the national level. Of course, in a democracy with elected presidents, we shouldn't be in that situation that we should always have the remedy of eventual no longer being in office, whether by impeachment or just by your term running out. So we, you know, it's, it's a bad sign when we start comparing ourselves to <laughs> transitions out of a dictatorship. And, you know, my view on this, Jacob, I, we're not in a dictatorship now. The president may have tried to do various things that the courts have found to be illegal, but the courts have found those things to be illegal. You know, the president may have tried to enact legislation that was unpopular, but Congress hasn't necessarily passed that legislation. So although I like to think of our Constitution as right now undergoing a stress test, I think the Trump administration is so far as a stress test for our Constitution, you know, we're not having a heart attack on the while well, we run on the treadmill. We're, our our system is functioning. It's under stress, but it's functioning.
1: Um, thinking about other historical analogies, uh, I was thinking about the pardons at the end of the first Bush administration because Bush pardoned, among others, Casper Weinberger, who had been indicted. Uh, by the special prosecutor Lawrence Walsh at the end of this very, very long investigation. I mean, everybody was sick to death of Iran-Contra by that point. It was more than five years after the scandal. Um, but nonetheless, Walsh indicted him and Bush pardoned him. And that was arguably a situation in which Weinberger, even though Bush was leaving office, could have potentially implicated him in in crimes. And the pardon brought an end to it. Why wasn't that a kind of, corrupt bargain.
0: Well, I think we need to be careful about this because there is a fascinating twist associated with pardons and testimony of other people. If I am being charged with a crime or I might be charged with a crime and a prosecutor tries to make me testify, I can take the fifth. I can say I refuse to testify on the grounds that it might incriminate me. And so I never will implicate my co-conspirators under those circumstances. But, you know, under ordinary conditions, what the prosecutors do, if they want to get around that, is they grant the person immunity. They say, look, okay, we promise we're not going to prosecute you. Now you can't plead the fifth. So now you have to testify. And if you don't testify, we'll throw you in jail for failure to testify. Well, the same thing would be true for somebody who had been pardoned. So if you're pardoned, you can then be made to testify. And you can't say, well, I don't want to testify because it might implicate me in crimes. Because you've been pardoned for those crimes. So it's actually not a good way to keep your, it's not a good way to keep associates quiet. Pardoning them runs a major, major risk. So, you know, I've heard even some speculation along these lines before. You know, is Trump implicitly promising pardons to people so that they don't testify against him? You know, who knows? But that doesn't seem very logical to me because if you do give somebody a pardon, then they can be made to testify, including testifying against you, and they can't hide behind the fifth.
1: I mean, as as crazy as I think Donald Trump is, I don't think he's crazy enough to try to pardon himself, and I I don't think anytime soon he's likely to pardon members of his family. What I am worried about is his ordering the firing of Robert Mueller and undermining or bringing to an end the investigation of him. What happens if – I mean, do you think he might do that, and what happens if he does?
0: So, first of all, yes, I think it's a possibility. I don't think it's a probability at all, but I think what we're seeing are trial balloons that the White House is sending out to see how not only we, but everyone out there will react. And I do think that if Trump believed that his presidency could survive firing the special prosecutor, he'd fire him because why not? You know, I think the cost would be less than the benefit. So yes, that is something I think we, I'm, we should all be thinking about and be aware of and be speaking out strongly against. Now, in terms of what would happen, the first thing is it would not be a constitutional crisis in the technical sense. Everyone agrees right now that under existing law, Mueller could be fired by the Attorney General for good cause. And that rule is itself a regulation enacted by the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice could retract that regulation. So the president could, he'd have to do two steps. You'd have to order the retraction of the regulation that says Mueller can only be fired for a good cause. And then he would fire Mueller at will because he was the president and he has the right to fire him. So, you know, this could well precipitate a kind of political crisis. Everyone would say, we would say that this is worse than the Saturday Night Massacre, although I guess it would just be the same as the Saturday Night Massacre when Nixon fired... That is
1: the Saturday Night Massacre scenario, exactly.
0: Exactly. We fired the special prosecutor. So we would say that that was wrongful. And then we would say the president should be impeached. And then the question would be, well, what would the the House do? And what would the Senate do if the House did impeach? And for all that we might yell and scream, there isn't another remedy available there. Now, things were different in the Clinton administration because at the time, there was a lawful, valid, upheld by the Supreme Court law in place, creating the independent counsel, Ken Starr's office. But that law has lapsed. It's not on the books anymore. And so the president has the constitutional authority to fire Mueller, and then the only remedy is impeachment and making a lot of noise and protesting and marching on Washington.
1: I mean, you have this kind of intrinsic problem, right, because the executive branch enforces the laws, including against the executive branch. So how do you create some structure that is fair and either doesn't report to the president but still has some kind of accountability, or does report to the president without the president undermining it. How How do you solve that problem?
0: Yeah, I mean, what you're identifying is, you know, one of the deep structural problems in the Constitution. It is a flaw in the Constitution. There's no question it's a serious flaw. The president's in charge of the Department of Justice. That means he's in charge, ultimately, of every prosecution. And so how do you prosecute a president or investigate a president who's potentially, you know, potentially criminally liable? you know the framers had an answer for that and their answer was impeachment and once he's out of office you can investigate him all you like but they didn't anticipate the tremendous power of the contemporary presidency which is far greater in this era of the imperial presidency than it was at all in that period of time they sort of thought well if the president got out of hand congress would not be so worried about impeachment and today of course it's much more complicated than that so Historically, what we've tried to do to solve this, we've tried a few different things. In the Nixon era, we tried the the public pressure leading to the special prosecutor. And then it sort of worked because after Nixon fired Archibald Cox, the investigation ended up going on and he ended up being forced to resign. So in that sense, you'd say it sort of worked. Then we experimented with the independent prosecutor law. And a lot of liberals thought that failed because it led to the impeachment of Bill Clinton. A lot of conservatives thought it was fine. But then under a Republican president, that law was allowed to lapse because Democrats didn't trust it and Republicans didn't particularly want it in place when they had their own president and their, their own party. And so, you know, now we're trying, really, we're going back to what we're trying, what was tried in the Nixon administration. And it's an experiment to see if it'll work. It's a it's an ongoing problem. I think the framers fix of impeachment is not a strong enough fix for this one.
1: Have any other countries that have, uh, liberal democracies that have written constitutions more recently learned from this experience? I mean, is there any structural solution to the problem if you, were, if you were starting from
0: scratch? I mean, I think almost every country in the world has an independent prosecutorial service that is not controlled by a politically elected partisan president. It, our constitution is considered a strange outlier globally. Um, both among presidential systems and parliamentary systems, in just how technically dependent on the president our federal prosecution services are. And I think, you know, that's, again, an anomaly of how old our constitution is. So everybody else pretty much now uses some version of an independent prosecutorial service. And then there's no great worry about them going after the president in a partisan way, because the whole idea of these kinds of prosecutorial services is that they're supposed to be thoroughly nonpartisan. So that's the standard global fix. You know, this is also why we've got this whole mess over, you know, the head of the FBI and, you know, the recusals. I mean, this is all because they're all in a chain of command going back to the president. We've had this tradition of trying to make prosecution as independent as it can be, but it's precisely that. It's It's a norm or a tradition or a custom, not a black letter law.
1: I've been speaking to Noah Feldman. He's a professor of constitutional law at Harvard. Noah, thanks for joining me.
0: Jacob, thanks for having me.
1: That's it for today's show. I want to thank all of you who supported Pledge Week last week on Trumpcast. It was a big success. We brought in several hundred new members for Slate Plus. I also want to tell you about another Slate podcast. Have you listened to Dear Prudence with Mallory Ortberg? Some of Trump's people might want to bring some of their problems to her. For example, Rens Priebus writes, I'm the chief of staff, but the chief won't listen to me, and I have no authority over the staff. Mallory would have a great answer to that one. You should give it a try. That show goes up every Tuesday, and you can find it at slate.com slash dearprudence. Trumpcast is produced by Jason Delion. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast.